Early in the 20th century, um, a London newspaper carried the advertisement that created quite a buzz. This was the advertisement, men wanted for hazardous darkness and constant danger, safe return, dopeful, honor and recognition in case of success. Now, I don't know if you would respond to such an advertisement as this, um, but literally thousands of people, thousands of men, responded to this advertisement in the London newspaper. And the ad was posted by the Arctic explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton, and the men who inquired about the adventure just thought it was a marvelous thing, I guess, that you were going to the Arctic. Commenting on this ad that's odd, if such an ad was posted today on social media, I wonder how much response it would get. But in his book, Be Faithful, Warren Wiersbe um, takes this advertisement that was showed up in the 20th century in a London newspaper and said, what if Jesus wrote a job description on social media? What if Jesus wrote a job description in the local newspaper? What would people, how would people respond? And this is what he said, if Jesus Christ had advertised for workers, the announcement might have read something like this, men and women wanted for a difficult task of helping to build my church. You will often be misunderstood even by those working with you. Uh-huh. Uh, you will face constant attack from an in- invisible enemy, yes. You may not see the f- results of your labor, uh-huh. and your full reward will, come until, uh, will not come until after your work is completed. It may cost you your home, your ambitions, and even your life. I wonder how many would inquire about the possibility of obtaining work with Jesus if they read that kind of uh, job description on social media or at the local job bank. The personal cost of exploring the Arctic region in the 20th century was incredible. There is no denying that. It would be incredible. But no more incredible than a person following Jesus Christ. The cost that we must pay to follow Jesus Christ. Perhaps one of the greatest struggles in the Christian life is in this area, and it's probably not an area that you have even thought about for maybe ever in your life or only seldom in your life. But there is an area in the Christian life that we struggle with, and it's in the area of defending yourself. Now, if I was to go around the room and ask, or ask online, you know, when's the last time you struggled with defending yourself? Very few of us would probably go, that's not really a Christian struggle that I have in my life. I'm pretty sure the answer to this question before I even ask it, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Have you ever defended your faith, your reputation, your work, your ethics, your intentions, your family, or life, or something else? And I'm sure that all of you would go, yes, I've defended myself on one or all of these issues at some point in my life. I'm, I'm sure if we were to ask on online this morning, there would be people who go, yeah, definitely, I've defended myself on these and other things as well. You see, whenever we are threatened or harassed or tarnished or criticized or challenged, it becomes a real moment in our life, a real moment of struggle. Do we defend ourselves or do we not? Do I stand up for who I am or do I not? Do I stand up for what I believe in or do I not? Do I or do I not? In fact, there are three major perspectives when it comes to defending yourself. I believe all of us fall into one of these three or maybe multiple of the three. First of all, you believe the best strategy is no defense. There are a lot of people who believe that. I'm not saying this is right or wrong this morning. This is just one perspective, one belief, that the best defense is no defense. 
Don't ever defend yourself. That's the best defense that you can have. It will all work itself out. Don't rock the boat. Uh, the truth of it will eventually come out. Just bide your time. And some of us will even go as far as saying, besides, Jesus never defended himself during his prosecution and execution, so why should I if Jesus didn't? So there is the belief that the best strategy is no defense. There are others of us who believe that the best strategy is to aggressively defend. You, you defend yourself at all costs. You, you take no prisoners. You don't become a doormat for anybody. You stand up for yourself. You aggressively stand up for yourself. I'm, again, neither saying this is right or wrong. It's just a perspective that we have. And then, excuse me, the third one is that you believe the best strategy is to mod moderately defend. In other words, you don't aggressively defend yourself. You know, you don't have your guns cocked and ready to go to aggressively defend yourself, but neither are, is your defense no defense. You're somewhere in the middle, moderately. Yes, there will be times when I will defend myself, other times I won't defend myself, and you kind of have this moderate approach. I believe all of us fall into one of those three categories, or sometimes we fall into two or all three of the categories, depending on the season of our life. When it comes to defending ourselves, perhaps the best strategy is this strategy. Defend me, God, from myself. I wish I could tell you who said it, but I don't. It's a wonderful prayer to pray, defend me, God, from myself. Because I've discovered that whenever I get into the arena of defending myself, generally the worst enemy that I have is who? Myself. So we should be praying all the time, Lord, defend me from myself. Welcome to week three, or excuse me, week nine of our best summer ever series. And today we're looking at, you are probably already guessed it, fullness through serving. You thought I was going to say fullness through defense or defending ourselves. No, it all ties together. It will make sense before we're done here this morning. But fullness through serving. Paul quickly transitions from chapters 8 and 9, which uh, living a full summer or the best summer ever series, we've been dealing with the Apostle Paul's book in 2 Corinthians. And last week we looked at 8 and 9, how we need to be extremely generous in our life. And this week he transitions from generosity to leadership and serving in chapter 10. And you probably already know this when it comes to serving, or you probably already know this when it comes to <clears throat> leadership, is that there is a price to pay for serving. There is a price to pay for serving. If you are helping or in leadership or serving, there is a price to pay. Some people at the Corinth church were questioning Paul's leadership, specifically his apostolic leadership. They were questioning his calling. They were questioning his conversion. They were questioning his missionary work. They were questioning his teachings. And Paul was being criticized for being an agitator to the Jews because he strongly objected to the insistence of keeping all of the Jewish, or excuse me, the Jews strongly argued that they needed to keep all of the Jewish commandments and that they would trump faith in Christ. So Paul considered holding all of the Jewish commandments as a great threat to the doctrine of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. For example, there were some Jewish leaders who were saying, yes, you can have faith in Christ, but in your faith in Christ, you also need to uphold all the Jewish commandments, such as circumcision, 
If you have faith in Christ and you are not a Jew, you should become circumcised. And Paul was going, no, 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 no. The law does not trump the doctrine of salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what matters. For Paul, the death and resurrection of Jesus solved the problem of exclusion from God's covenant for the Gentiles. In other words, Paul was saying, and Peter preached this too, that that Jesus Christ dying on the cross, rising again through His act of death and resurrection, there is salvation to all who believe. Jew, Greek, Gentile, all can be grafted into God's family. That's good news. Amen? But to a law-abiding Jew, it was a tough pill to swallow. And it often translated into criticism towards Paul's teaching, to who Paul was. In this atmosphere of criticism, so Paul is serving, Paul is teaching, Paul is doing the work of the Lord. He's planting churches all over Asia Minor, including the Corinth church. In the face of this criticism, Paul makes the core of his defense God. The core of his defense is God. He makes Jesus the core of his defense. Now I've noticed that when we defend ourselves... Rarely do we ever make Jesus or God the core of our defense. We generally often end up making ourselves the core of our defense. Just the opposite of Paul's strategy. There are three dangers when we make our entire defense about us. And here they are this morning. You can take them or leave them, but I think they're true this morning. There is a temptation to lie and deny. When, we, when our defense is our life, when we make our defense all about us, there is this temptation to lie or deny. We say such things as, I didn't say that. I didn't do that. That wasn't me you saw. That was somebody else. You must have mistaken me for somebody else. We we will be tempted to lie. If not lie, we will be tempted to deny, to defend ourselves. One of the greatest examples that I can give from my lifetime, and I'm not picking on political parties this morning or presidents or anything of that nature, but I'd like to use this, President, as an example this morning of that when you make yourself your defense, you set yourself up to lie and deny. How many remember President Clinton? How many remember his relations that he had with a girl by the name of Monica Lewinsky, an intern? How many remember the moment he went on national television and said, I will tell you, I did not have relations with that girl. What was he doing? He was lying. What else was he doing? Denying. Lying and denying. When we are our defense, there is a great temptation to lie and deny to protect ourselves. There's also another temptation, a temptation to deflect. When our defense is focused on us, there's a temptation to deflect our character flaws or our criticism that comes towards us, to deflect it onto someone or something else rather than ourselves. So we defend ourselves by deflecting the criticism and challenges that we're facing to somebody or something else. We'll say such things as, if you only knew what I put up with, you would understand. If you only knew the full story, we're deflecting, deflecting. How can you criticize me? You don't know the full story. You don't even know if I was there or if I did that. So we're deflecting, deflecting. When our defense is about us, 
There is this strong temptation to deflect to someone or something else. Finally, there is a great temptation to negotiate. When we make our defense about ourselves, we negotiate. It's tempting to have a negotiating defense. Individuals with this kind of defense can often be heard saying, oh, it's not that bad. Why don't you look the other way? Just this once. If you scratch my back, then I'll scratch your back. Or when we really want to get a little nasty in our negotiating skills, we'll say, there's lots I could say about you, so be careful what you say about me. We are negotiating to defend ourselves. Paul avoids all of these self-promoting and self-serving tactics of lie, deny, deflect, and negotiate. And by the way, they are very, very prevalent tactics used today in relationships to either lie, deny, deflect, or negotiate. Paul makes his defense not about those things. He makes his defense about God. Could you imagine that? He makes his defense about God, and he presents to us a threefold defense in chapter 10 that I want us to quickly look at this morning. First of all, his first defense is this. It's God's work. It's not Paul's work. It's not the leaders at the Corinth church work. It's not the pastor's work. It's God's work. It's God's work. Paul understood that, and, and that's why he writes in the first five verses of chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am, in quotation marks, timid, when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. Now, Paul is being a little bit sarcastic here because word has got back to Paul that some of the leaders at the Corinth church were saying, oh yeah, Paul's all talk when he's writing letters, but when he's actually eyeballing you, he's a very timid guy. Now, that was not the case, but that's what they were saying about Paul and his leadership. And so Paul's taking a crack at them here in verse 1. And then in verse 2, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be toward some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. So Paul, is a, he's calling them out on the carpet here a little bit. He's going, we don't live by the standards of the world, but you think we live by the standards of the world. And that's why you're accusing me of things that is not true. And then in verse 3, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Verse 4, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What kind of strongholds are you talking about here, Paul? Look at verse 5. He goes on to say, we demolish arguments, arguments, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it excuse me, obedient to Christ. Say that, this phrase with me, church. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul was saying in these first five verses of chapter 10 in 2 Corinthians about leadership and about serving and about defending yourselves, he was saying, first of all, it's God's work. It's not Paul's work, it's God's work. And Paul's defense was simple. He was saying it's God's work done God's way with God's power. Don't ever forget that, he's saying. And we, church, should never forget that, right? We should never forget that it's God's work done God's way with God's power. We should never, ever forget those three things. Paul goes so far to say is stop criticizing by the world's standards and start cuddling up to God's standards. 
There is a lot of us who cuddle up to the world's standards. We act by the world's standards. When Paul is saying we should be acting by God's standards. And God's standards tell us that it is God's work done God's way by God's power. But sadly, there are far too many people in the church and outside of the church and in all parts of our society and world, there are far too many people who would much rather talk about a divine way of living rather than actually living a divine way of living. If I say the statement, I'm sure you can finish it for me this morning. Unfortunately, talk is... You've heard it before. Unfortunately, talk is cheap. Bob Goff, I love his stuff. He said this one day, he said, everyone's got an opinion. Be an example. I don't know if you've been on social media recently, but if you've been on social media, you know that everyone's got an opinion. You could post a picture of a dog and have a thousand different opinions about that dog. Like everyone has an example, not only on social media, but in all sectors of our world. If you watch the news, if you look at what's going on around the world, everyone has an opinion. But I found very few people want to be an example. Very few people want to be an example. Everyone wants to give their opinion, but few want to be their example. So how do we live a life that is not opinionated, but is an example to Jesus Christ and to the world? How do we do that? Well, let's go back to verse number 5. In verse 5, Paul says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and read this, it's in a different color with me this morning, church. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Powerful statement. And some of you are thinking that's an impossible statement. Pastor, you're telling me take captive of every thought and make it obedient to Christ. I'm not saying that. Paul is saying that. And Paul was saying that because he knew that it was God's work. God's work done God's way with God's power. You can take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit allows us to take captive of every thought and make it obedient to Christ. But even at that... I'm sure there are some of us in this room and watching online this morning going, yeah, I hear you, but it still sounds impossible. Every second, every moment of every day of my entire life, I can take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That seems impossible, Pastor. How do we do it? Well, if you take that word, take captive, from the Greek, the Greek suggests that you could have actually written in the English Bible, means to take control, to conquer, to bring into submission. Now that still doesn't help us answer the question. It only muddies the water even more. So how do I control my mind? How do I conquer my thoughts? How do I bring them into submission to obedience to Christ? How do I do that? It, again, it sounds impossible. But it is only possible through two ways. Now you're going to go, this is very simplistic this morning, Pastor. It is. But I believe if every one of us in this room and watching online this morning did these two things, I believe you could take captive every thought and make it obedient to the ways of Christ. 
The first thing is that you need to constantly acknowledge everything is God's. Every moment of every day, you must acknowledge that everything is God's. Everything that you have, everything that you possess, everything that you are a boat, you must acknowledge that everything is God's. It's not yours. It's not somebody else's. It's God's. Everything that I have is God's. Say that with me, church. Everything that I have is God's. You are one step closer to taking captive every thought and making obedient to Christ. Because the, that's the first hurdle that you need to jump over. Everything is God's. It's not mine. It's God's. The second thing that we need to do is work. Constantly train your mind via the Holy Spirit. Constantly discipline your mind according to the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit. You see, the, the mind has the power to shape your life. If you have stinking thinking, you're going to have what kind of a life? A stinking life. And that's a negative, not a positive this morning. You're going to have a stinking life. If, you, if your thinking is hopeless, then you will live a hopeless life. If your thinking is sinful, guess what kind of life you're going to live? You're going to live a sinful life. If your thinking is Jesus, then you're going to live a Jesus-filled life. But that takes work. It takes training. It takes discipline to captivate every thought to the, to the submission and to the authority and to the will of Jesus. It takes work. It takes training. It takes time by the power of the Holy Spirit to captivate our thoughts in obedience with Christ. We start with it's God's work. It's all God's. It's God's work done God's way by God's power. Peter was no stranger to criticism. A lot of his criticism that he had in his life came at his own doing. But he wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. He goes, but your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Let's just stop right there for a moment. But your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Now, the terminology that we use um, within within Christianity, is Christ um, often refers to Jesus as king. Christ is a king term. Um, so there's Jesus. Jesus has lots of names. But when we use the word uh, Jesus Christ, we're saying that Jesus is king. And so Peter's writing here, but in your hearts revere Christ, king as Lord. If Jesus is king of your life, king of your, uh, uh, of your world, then a king means he's a ruler over what? Everything in that domain. So if Jesus is the king of your life, he's the ruler of your life. He's the ruler of your heart. He's the ruler of your mind. He's the ruler of who you are. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And Peter goes on to say this in verse 15, but do this with, and I find this comical because if you know Peter, he was never gentle and rarely respectful. But he goes, but do this with gentleness and respect. And then he goes on to write in verse 16, keeping a clear conscience. How do you keep a clear conscience? You captivate every thought and make it obedient to Christ. If you're captivating every thought and making it obedient to Christ, then you have a what? A clear mind. You have a clear conscience. You don't have anything to worry about. You're not looking over your shoulder. So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be what? Ashamed of their slander. Paul's first defense, it's God's work, 
done God's way with God's power. It's not Paul's work done Paul's way with Paul's power. It is God's work done God's way with God's power. Second defense that Paul shows us, so not only does he say it is God's work, but second of all, he shows us in chapter 10 that it is God's authority. It is God's authority. Paul points to God's authority um, when, he, when his critics are questioning his conversion. We, f- we see this in verse 7 of chapter 10. Um, Paul writes, you are judging by appearances. So the outward appearance is what Paul is referring to. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. Now, some people were, con- were questioning Paul's conversion, and Paul's going, if you're a follower of Christ and you're saying you're converted, then I am too, because my, my story of conversion is just as true as your story of conversion. And in fact, I would even argue that Paul has the most dramatic conversion experience in the entire history of mankind. Because he's going around persecuting the church, he's executing Christians, he's trying to destroy the work of Jesus Christ, when on the way to Damascus, God strikes him with the light, blinds him, and then speaks to him in an audible voice. Now, I don't know about you, but my conversion experience, I didn't hear an audible voice. But he does. And the voice goes... Yo, Saul, why are you messing with my plan? Because my plan is this, and you're going around terrorizing. I want you to partner with me, not be against me. It's such a dramatic spiritual moment that Paul converts his life to Jesus Christ. He gets back his sight, and he begins planting churches all over Asia and Asia Minor. He has quite the story. Quite the conversion experience. And he's going, this is my story. So if you say that you've been converted, don't discard my conversion experience either. Then he goes on to say, so even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave me, the Lord gave me the authority during my conversion experience, continues by the power of His Holy Spirit to give me the power for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. You see, Paul is highlighting a key problem in the Corinth church. It's not a new problem, but it's a problem that has continued for quite a while, and Paul addresses it. And it's this, that the church is suffering from superficial spirituality. Superficial spirituality. Why would I say that? Because Paul says, you are judging by what? Appearances. You are looking at the outside. You're looking at circumstances that are, are, are on, the le- on, the, on the very top of the surface. Like You're not digging in deep. You're just looking at how people dress. You're, you're looking at how people act. You're looking at surface-level stuff, and it's giving you surface-level spirituality. You see, some of the leaders in the Corinth church were focusing on superficial things, meaningless things. Friends, I'm going to say something to you that is true, but it hurts. Whenever people in God's church assume God's authority, all hell breaks loose. Whenever people in God's church assume God's authority, all hell breaks loose. Do you know how many stories there are of leaders and people in God's church who assume God's authority and split a church over a color scheme or carpet ply or coat hooks or the coffee wasn't strong enough or music preferences or the length of services? Do I need to go on? 
They are all superficial, surface-level spiritual items. Many of the issues that we struggle with in the church today are superficial, surface-level. In fact, I would argue, and you can challenge me on this, not right this moment, please, but maybe after the service, I would argue that over the last 50 years, some of the fireworks that's happened in the church had very little to do with deep biblical or theological issues. They all, they all had to do with carpet colors and preferences. Paul's defense is this. It's God's authority. It's not Paul's authority. It's not the pastor's authority. It's not the disciples' authority. It's God's authority. If you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Paul's words from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. Paul said, Are we condemning ourselves, or commending, excuse me, ourselves to you again? No, we are giving you a reason to be proud, to encourage us, is what Paul is saying here. What are you doing? What are you saying, Paul? So you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. Paul was saying, so you can address those people who think they're having a spectacular ministry without a sincere heart. Do you know what the church suffers from in North America? It suffers from wanting a spectacular ministry rather than a sincere heart. It does. I won't tell you how long ago, but it's been a, a while ago. I attended a conference. And they brought this speaker in who had a spectacular ministry. And it didn't take very long to realize that all it was was spectacular. There was no sincerity of heart. As the speaker went on for two days about, I've done this and I've done that. I've been in a Hollywood movie. I've written multiple books. I've grown the church. We've done some satellites. It was I, I, I. Never once during those two days did I ever think something was accomplished by the authority of God. It was accomplished by the authority of a man. Without a sincere heart. Paul's defense? It is God's work. Paul's defense, it is God's authority. Third, Paul's final defense is it's God's power. Now, power and authority go really, really close together here, and really we could have gone one, two, but I'm the one delivering the message this morning, and I feel it's important, and so we're going one, two, three, and power is another defense that Paul talks about, the power of God. Let's look at a couple of verses Paul writes in 12, 13. Then we're going to jump down a few verses. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. They are not wise. Now, let me tell you, if you don't already know this, this is a recipe for disaster right here. When you measure yourself by yourself and compare yourself with yourself, you are in a tough spot. Like That is not good advice right there. You will not be wise. Verse 13, Paul goes on to say, We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service, of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. And then we're going to jump down to verse 17. But let the one who boasts, boast in the 
in the Lord. Let's never forget that, church. Let us boast in the Lord. In verse 18, Paul goes on to say, For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends is the one who is approved. The one the Lord commends. Paul concludes this chapter by saying that the only one I'm boasting in is Jesus. It is his work done by his authority with his power. Because it is Jesus. Paul knew it was Jesus who either condemns us or commends us. And I don't know about you, but I would much rather want Jesus to commend than to condemn. And so Paul is saying, it's nothing that I've done. It's all what Jesus has done. And it is Jesus who has commended me to do the work of the Lord. And I trust that he will do the same for you. On May 1st, 1991, Ricky Henderson, I followed his career a little bit, especially when he jumped to the Toronto Blue Jays and won a World Series with them. Um, but this was before his days with the Blue Jays. Ricky Henderson, on May 1st, 1991, became the first baseball player, he was playing with the Oakland A's, who stole third, day on, uh, stole third base on that day. He became the first person to steal the most bases and the only person since who have stolen the most bases. But on that day, he broke the record with stealing third base with 939 stolen bases. He went on to steal a lot more than 939. But in that moment, when Ricky and Textbook-style Ricky Henderson, he, he went from second base to third base, and as he go into third base, he slid head first. I think that's the only way he did it. He just slid in, head first, hands out, and boom. He looked at the umpire, third base umpire, and the third base umpire said he was safe. He jumps up, grabs the third base, and puts it over his head, and the whole crowd in the stadium goes wild. They're cheering on, Ricky, 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 because he broke the record at 939 stolen bases. Odd thing in baseball. I don't think I've ever seen this happen before in baseball, but they actually stopped the game and they commended Ricky Henderson for stealing 939 bases. His mother was the first one on the field. She jumped right out of the stands and she just came right down and she, she muckled on to Ricky's neck and she was just kissing him and she was so happy for him, just like she was a good mom. Like, she go, Ricky, go. But there was another guy who came out of the stands that day who was intentionally there for that moment, Lou Brock. Lou Brock was the guy who had held the record at 938 stolen bases. He moses himself out of the stands towards the third baseline, and there he embraces Ricky too and gives him a hug. And they stop the game, and they give a plaque to Ricky, and they actually brought a microphone out on this day. In the middle of this baseball game, they just stopped it. And they say, Ricky, what, what do you want to say? And so Ricky Henderson began, he began saying, I'd like to first of all thank God, but... Most athletes do. I think that's commendable. I think you should do that. But he said, first thing I want to do is I want to thank God for giving me this, this honor. And then he went on to say, I, I want to thank all the coaches that is, who has ever coached me. I want to thank the manager. I want to thank you know, the, the baseball commissioner. I want to thank everybody. I want to thank everybody in Oakland uh, or in, in California. I want to just thank everybody. I want to thank my neighbors, my friends, and my friends' dogs. I just want to thank everybody. Like He went on and on and on. If you watch the video, the YouTube clip, he just goes on and on and on. And then he comes down to this moment. He's got the microphone in his hand. And he goes, in true Ricky Henderson fashion, I am the greatest of all time. 
and walks off. And the whole stadium worships Ricky Henderson this day. Here's the problem. When we boast about ourselves, we are really asking people to worship us. When we boast about ourselves, we are actually asking people to worship us. I am the greatest of all time. What was Ricky Henderson asking? He was asking people in the stadium that day to honor him as the best guy in baseball to steal bases. Worship me. When we go around saying, I've done this and I've done that, we're asking people to commend us, to worship us. Paul's defense in boasting, trust me, if anybody could have boasted, it was Paul. About his conversion experience, about the amount of churches he planted, about where he took the gospel message, about the healings that he saw for the people he prayed for. And what does Paul say? It's God's work done by God's authority, by God's power. It's nothing to do with Paul. I'm just an instrument in God's plan. Paul based verse 17 on the words of Jeremiah the prophet that we should never ever forget the words of the prophet. The prophet said this in Jeremiah 9.23. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone. Say this with me, church. That they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord. That we truly know who Jesus is and that we know Him. Whoever demonstrates unfailing love, he's talking about God, whoever demonstrates, who, excuse me, demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things, I, the Lord, have spoken. If God is saying we should not boast about ourselves, we should not boast about ourselves. If Paul is saying, I don't want to boast about myself, then we should say, I want to boast about myself. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, be careful how you boast. Be careful. If you're a follower of Jesus, be careful how you defend yourself as you serve Jesus and his kingdom, be careful. Be like Paul. And let your defense be Jesus. Because it's the best way to fully serve. To let Jesus be the guide. It is his work done his way with his power. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you we thank you that we are able to be part of your kingdom and part of your work. And too many times we make the work about us. We make the things of life about us. And right now we want to take captive every thought and make it obedient to you, Christ. We, we want to acknowledge that all things are yours, God's. They're not ours, they're yours. It's your work. We want to do it your way by your power. And by your Holy Spirit, would you... Help us take captive every thought. 
to make it obedient to your ways, Jesus. For those times that we boasted when we should not have, because we we're boasting about ourselves, forgive us today, Jesus. For those moments when we've defended ourselves and we lied and denied and deflected, Lord, help us. Forgive us for those moments. May our only defense be your defense, Jesus. As we serve you in your church and in your kingdom, empower us to be like Paul, to make it about you and your work, your authority and your power. May we surrender everything to you. In Jesus' name.